Brett is going to talk about discrete event simulation. People use the term simulation often, but I call discrete event simulation simulation, and I call what-if analysis the optimization when we run what-if. So we're in the middle of the pandemic, and I'm on LinkedIn, and I get this message from Brett. You remember the message? Yeah. <laughs> Tell him the story. I actually, I cold called Laura because I had been following her and I said, you know, I recently joined an organization and despite even the pandemic, we've got some internal issues and challenges. I'd like to get kind of your perspective and, and can you help me out? And Laura returned my call. That's right. <laughs> And we had a great conversation about visualization of variability and about its current use of optimization. This client, or this company, not a client, was actually a Gaines Systems customer that I had met at a Gaines event. And I talked through the difference between optimization and simulation. And Brett's problem as the chief supply officer is we're in the middle of a pandemic and he can't get enough gloves. He's going to talk to you about the importance of gloves. And, you know, gloves were really important during the pandemic. So, Brett, I'm going to leave you on the stage. This will bring you forward and Great. your slides are loaded. So Great. we'll see you in about 25 minutes. Great. Thank you. So... I, I realize that I'm in the middle of, you know, where food coma is starting to set in from lunch. And uh, so we're hopefully going to, you know, keep this entertaining. And I'm, I'm probably in between you and a break. So I also wanted to kind of review what I learned personally today is that from Kevin, I'm going to go out and buy a Toro lawnmower for sure. No. Rick and Clorox, I, I'm going to go, you know, have my favorite barbecue at Kingsford and, and Hidden Valley Ranch. And Ashley, I... I need a good night's sleep because I slept here last night at, at a Western and didn't sleep all that well. So some really fantastic stories that we heard this morning on all of those, um, you know, the good work that folks are doing uh, in supply chains, you know, across our professional industry. Western Digital, massive supply chain and, and, and work being done there. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here today uh, to share a little bit of our story at Amicare Royal what we're doing in what we called Operate Project Rubik. So really showcasing, as, as Laura had teed up, a, a network design that leveraged both optimization and simulation to really develop our comprehensive supply chain strategy. We'll talk about the timing of that. It started, actually, I joined Amicare Royal in May of 2020 the effort really kind of started to take hold in terms of strategy work in the beginning of 2021, and we're into implementation now. But I'll walk you through a history and give you an overview. We may not be as commonly known as the likes of Clorox and Toro, but chances are you've used some of our product. We'll talk about the, the case for the engagement, the reason why and why now the strategy development work that, that took place, the implementation piece of how to actually bring that strategy to life and actually make it a reality, as well as the value proposition and some of the results that we're seeing today. And then hopefully we'll have some time for some, some questions. So who is Amicare Royal? As I said, probably not known, but you've probably touched some of our, our products we're a food service and, and packaging organization. We have over about 6,000 products across 20, 
five different divisions or so. We're in the restaurant space, so quick service restaurants, QSRs, fast casual, full service dining. We're in not only restaurants, but, but uh, institutional, Jan, Jan Sand space, uh, education, uh, schools, hospitals, healthcare. As the slide indicates, we're in the front of the house and customer facing as well as back of the house. Uh, our top divisions, gloves, uh, number one division, so really important during the pandemic as you can imagine and, and what we went through early days of, of the pandemic. Takeout packaging, so you think about restaurants that shut down and move from on-premise to, to takeout, uh, plastic products moving from you know, environmentally conscious to get it to a wrapped meal kit, I don't care, it can't be bulk, to our eco-friendly line of packaging and containers in molded fiber. Uh, Amicare Royal is, is made up of a couple of different business units. We're essentially, Amicare is under uh, an Im importing a label. We have domestic manufacturing in our uh, McNairin and Ross and Wallace. Uh, business units that do food service, uh, paper conversions, and paper products. And then we have a direct container business that provides basically logistic services from our supply base over to our customers, and we don't actually take inventory of the product, but we coordinate logistic services at a full container load perspective. How we go to market under the, uh, if you set aside the domestic manufacturing piece, because that was out of scope, but on the importer side, how we go to market, basically through a couple of different channels. The main channels are distribution, so we, our customers are broadliners like the Cisco's and U.S. Foods of the world, regional distributors like Edward Don or Southeastern Paper. Uh, we have national accounts, end users, or, or concepts that were in the likes of Chipotle, Firehouse, Five Guys. This is the scope in the red box that actually the engagement kind of centered around. It represents about 50% of the total business across the portfolio. We also have our direct containers that I mentioned, do a lot in terms of cash and carry there. And then 511 is our, um, essentially our Canadian entity that mirrors the distribution and national accounts business up in Canada as well. Amicare Royal, the journey really started to take shape in 2014 when private equity got involved. And we're a series of kind of founder-led, very agile companies, simple product portfolio, simple supply chain networks, one or two locations. Um, private equity got involved and over the last eight years, eight eight acquisitions, so a lot of growing pains, a lot of complexity, <clears throat> not only from, you think about an IT perspective with all the ERP and planning systems, but also from a supply chain perspective. Um, 6,000 SKUs across those 25 divisions, about 2,000 ship to locations, about 1,000 customers, um, a, a supply base of about 250 uh, factories, both domestic in international in tremendous growth. So you can imagine when we hit 2021, even before the pandemic and global, un unprecedented global supply chain disruption, in Amer Amicare Royal, we really had a lot of growing pains as we were trying to bring these networks together, grow, grow up into 
uh, the, you know, our growth aspirations and ambitions for the future. So perfect time, uh, some people would say, you know, no time is a good time, even in the middle of the pandemic, but really perfect time to step back and say, how do we start to bring and integrate and, and bring synergies to the supply chain network? So the case for Project Rubik, you can tell every supply chain person wants to be a marketer, right? So Project Rubik was born, and it was really to step back and say, how do we deliver? You, know, you heard a lot today about the customer being at the center. How do we deliver our customer experience? We knew that we weren't meeting that you know, even before the pandemic, uh, but in, in terms of you know, not only surviving the day of COVID in kind of our immediate, but really stepping back and saying, how do we, at the end of the day, come out of the pandemic in a much better spot as a supply chain in doing that longer term work? Let's do that even though we're in the middle of the pandemic, we need to do that uh, today. So we found ourselves, as you can imagine, with a lot of growing pains plus the external pieces of, of the supply chain with, you know, candidly lower service levels that our customers were grappling with, uh, increased order splits, back orders, impacting efficiencies in the DC, a, a high cost to serve, network transfers and non-value-added activity in the, in the network, uh, inefficient use of inventory imbalances across the network, simply wrong product at the wrong place, lack of standardization. So you can imagine these eight organizations kind of coming together each having their own operating policies, purchasing and buying policies, replenishment guidelines. You know, when I asked, what's a standard order lead time, we would get the response, well, it depends on the customer, the product, the time of year. Um, we try to fulfill everybody uh, as soon as possible. So you had severe kind of lack of standardization. We were at a point where, you know, looking, looking inward, we said we have an opportunity really to develop our people and capabilities. We stood up a demand planning group in between the, the uh, sales force and su supply. We introduced IBP or integrated business planning, sales and operations planning, whatever you want to call it, but that process between supply and demand and finance. And at the same time, we also looked to increase our systems, enhance systems that weren't working for us um, in our current state and clearly weren't going to work for us in the future. So we upgraded our planning tools, our WMS and TMS systems. And then finally, really, it was more about our baseline understanding, getting a true understanding of our cost drivers and knowledge about our, our, our overall supply chain network, where we were winning and losing, um, and the service implications. So as we embarked on this at the beginning of 2021, you know, important to step back and say, we had started with a, on the left-hand side of the page of a very kind of siloed view of, hey, we're going to optimize our service, we're going to optimize, you know, we're going to look at customer service, we're going to look at demand and our product portfolio, and then inbound and outbound, and very kind of siloed. And, and quickly, we kind of realized that we needed to really look at the customer service strategy, the commercial strategy, get input from our customers and competitors, where we're winning and losing, what our true business objectives are. And the supply chain needs to follow, the supply chain strategy needs to follow the commercial strategy. 
And this notion of kind of those two things iterating back and forth. So it was really important that we structured this not as a supply chain initiative, but really a kind of a business initiative. Myself and the commercial lead were the two stakeholders. Uh, and we set this, this up in, in, in this way of 1A. 1B was also the need in, in every organization you have to kind of pay to play. And you know, there's always a desire, particularly with strategy work, it often takes much longer than, than maybe the organization realizes or stakeholders realize. So we wanted to put a fast track in in terms of the ability to kind of accelerate quick wins or learnings that we could apply to key accounts. So we did this track of quick wins for uh, focused customers. Most initiatives start with a comprehensive baseline. That was, that was the case as well. We did customer interviews and surveys about what's meaningful for our customers to get a true understanding around fill rates, case fill rates, are splits acceptable or not. There was kind of this perception whether or not it was, it was a, a problem for our customers. We tried to validate that. We looked at our customer demand and our, our ship to locations. We did an affinity analysis to see if there were like products being ordered or not. We looked at the, the variability and velocity segmentation. We looked kind of end to end in terms of network cost from an inbound perspective, receiving and handling, storage, outbound. Uh, what's happening in our customer delivery in terms of out of region shipments, not at the appropriate DC, whether it was picked up or delivered, the mode mix, we were candidly historically had about two-thirds LTL, one-third truckload, uh, shipment size profiles, order mins, inventory, the impact of inventory on our, and capacity on our, on our sites, vendor, vendor import uh, metrics, domestic, as well as kind of moves within the network. So comprehensive baseline to really understand our jumping off point. Optimization and simulation, I'll tell you that critical for, for buy-in in the organization, you know, and I will say that uh, don't really have time to go into uh, too much detail, but the nuances of kind of standard optimization and what you get in terms of output of, of different scenarios or strategies, and then the use of simulation to really model those and take actual orders and really test the performance of those alternatives. So that's something that, that typically we um, would not have done and not have gone that far. Uh, and there were some real aha moments that probably led us to some things that we didn't really realize. Um, and I'll, I'll go into that for a second. There's also kind of a, a shout out that we were able to uh, partner at the time we were using GAINS, um, Optilogix was our, our partner on, on the initiative, and we coupled GAINS and Optilogix together as our planning tools. So we were able to leverage the buying logic and inventory policies of GAINS during that simulation work. So really, really powerful as an organization to have two vendor partners working with us at the same time. So let me talk a little bit about kind of the, some of the um, work that was done in terms of actual uh, planning and execution logic. We went through you know, the, the buying logic of, you know, we need the product. Is it available in the network? Do you go source it? Do you have to buy up to a container build? Go through the receiving operations logic in terms of 
inbound shipments and respecting storage capabilities and you know, whether or not we need uh, offsite 3PLs, uh, customer, order routering, uh, customer order routing, you know, is a partial fulfillment allowed? Are lines, can they be split? Can orders be backordered or not? And then transportation mode selection. Um, and, you know, whether it's as inventory becomes available, or, le or less than truckload or partial shipments go down, full truckloads and uh, go up and service goes up. So that, those simulations pieces uh, really kind of were tested across essentially five different strategies. Uh, one was kind of a planned, optimized network, a hub and spoke, a centralized, and a reduced footprint network. And I just would point out that the seat you know, we really thought going in that a lot of SKUs, long tail, we're going to go ahead and um, we're going to probably consolidate and do some type of uh, centralized or hub and spoke model um, for particularly that long tail and C items. Through the use of simulation, we actually discovered that as you consolidated Cs, the, the buying bracket up on the A and B items where you left it not in a hub model, actually that outweighed all of the synergies in the, in the, in the consolidation benefit of, of a, a hub and spoke or a centralized model. Something that we probably would have never really realized in a pure optimization scenario. So bottom line, we reassigned 27% of our, our customers and shipped to locations. We actually um, talked about, you know, this was not an effort of brick and mortar change of location, but really about policies and in, in, uh, inventory and buying policies and stocking strategies. We reassigned these, these customers and we essentially got results across the board that you typically, you know, you look at and say, mm, I'm not sure that this is true. Uh, financial results, cost per case goes down. Working capital did go up from a financial perspective, but it almost went in lockstep as we looked at forecasted demand. It almost went up in lockstep in terms of the demand that was served. Fill rates from a service perspective, fill rates went up, splits, back orders, and lost sales all went down. Our, our um, storage utilization actually had a, a DC that was in our planned network that was over capacity at 176%. You might say, well, how does that happen? It's trailers on the yard, 3PLs, regional uh, work. The DC got that and reconfigured, reconfigured into about 90% and utilized the network more appropriately in the existing footprint that we actually had. And then customer delivery, another kind of aha that came out of this. You recall that I said we were running at two-thirds LTL shipments, one-third truckload. We actually know that we can flip that to two-thirds full truckload, one-third less than truckload. So an important piece on customer delivery. So how do we you know, make that happen? You know, at the end of the day, all of those things are great on paper. Comes to the end of the almost a year into it and say, now you got to bring that to life, right? How do you implement that? And I think that's a, an important piece that bringing that, making it a reality. We went through some pilot work, test and learn, we then, you know, kind of, it's almost like, you know, running down the highway at 90 miles an hour and changing the tires a bit, right? Because 
We're going to make all of these network moves, but we don't want our customers to feel any of that, that pain, if you will. So we essentially re reconfigured and repointed uh, inbounds that were in, on the ocean to our new DCs, flipped the network in terms of default locations, and then started an aggressive kind of ramp down of inventory, ramp up in new locations, and then an aggressive kind of governance and, and governance and tracking process as well. Definitely change management involved, not only externally with our customers to make sure that they weren't you know, impacted by this as well as internally of what we were doing in the network. So the value proposition, I'm, what, what excites me is that not only did we have the ability to kind of take on a large-scale uh, initiative, by the way, that was, we had a false start in 2018, so our board was a little skeptical of this to begin with, but really kind of to, to, to deliver what we think were savings. And then the exciting piece is that we're putting it in place, and actually we're starting to see results. So as you can imagine, coming into 2022, still in the middle of the pandemic, we actually projected an annual savings of almost 20% across the network. That's a huge number. And, and I said, I'm, I'm not gonna go to the, you know, that's in a stable, steady state. So as, as a, a supply chain professional, I said, we gotta really kinda, you know, de-risk this. Uh, and given the, the volatility and uncertainty of the, of the marketplace at the time with COVID, we really discounted that savings to, probably around six or 7% that we thought we could get to. So for example, our model said, hey, there won't be any transfers in the network. We knew that average day delays was still up into the 30 to 45 days. We had incremental inventory in the network. So we tempered that and discounted the savings. We took kind of half year to say six to nine months of implementation. And we said, we should be able to get three to, three to 5% uh, savings. Um, I'm really pleased to say that, and this slide is a little dated, we're probably at the 26-week 20, mark, but all of these trends are, are still holding true and actually improving. So orders by default location is, is up improving, you know, double-digit, 14% lines, 13 in cases, uh, this is almost up to 10. Our outbound transportation is headed in the right direction, so we're seeing synergies there. We're getting better mode mix optimization as well. So we're seeing a lot of those, it's early yet, but even as we're coming out of the pandemic, we're really seeing those results come true. So last but not least, I'd, I'd leave you with, you know, our key takeaways for this project. Increased knowledge of the overall supply chain. You know, in a true in-depth understanding of the, where we're winning and losing, the cost drivers, service implications. You know, our operating policies, our purchasing policies, splits, replenishment guidelines, order mins, hugely impactful for us. Again, we didn't change the physical network, the brick and mortar, but clarified those things and really what that impact is on the network. The multiple strategic scenarios to not only meet our immediate needs, but also prep us for long-term work. And, and to deliver you know, pragmatic, achievable savings to the organization. So our implementation work continues. We're really excited about the effort, and um, we're really excited about our future.
Great presentation. Just stay up on the stage a couple more minutes. I'm going to ask you some questions, and then we're going to go to break, and then Allison's going to give a case study at Medtronic on what if optimization and digital twin. All of these terms kind of float around in the industry, and most people don't understand what they mean. So you remember our conversation when I talked about what if optimization versus digital simulation? How would you explain the difference of the power to be able to do discrete event simulation versus what if optimization? Yeah, so I think it really gave us the confidence that what we were proposing was executable. And I don't think we would have really had that in-depth view of how the network was going to perform. So taking that back, and we were very confident that what we had proposed was very executable and doable with simulation. So I don't know if you remember our call. It's been a long time ago. But I remember you asking me the question of, how do I get executive buy-in? <laughs> yeah, which is always a challenge. <laughs> and what's your takeaway from this case study and your journey? Yeah, so we were fortunate to have a, a board and, and senior leadership buy-in to, to begin. I'll tell you, from a, from a commercial side, it was very important for, for me personally to, to make sure that I had a commercial partner in that. And um, it took a while, candidly. How it was billed as, it was the first three or four months was really kind of billed as, well, that's a, that's a supply chain issue. That's a network like, we'll, yes, we'll come and we'll, let, we'll provide input, but you know, to be a meaningful partner. And it wasn't until we started really showing them the work that we wanted to do about customer interviews and, and surveys and, and the power of what this could really do that we kind of had to. So we went over some of the commercial counterparts for sure. So what's your advice for the group out of this experience? It takes probably a little longer than, than you think. It's, it's worth it. I think you got to do some of that hard work on the executive buy-in and stakeholder stuff. I think spend more time on the planning than, and I think it translates to the implementation goes smoother at, at the end of the day. I would just say one of the things I'd like you to take away is you had the courage to ask the question. Yeah, yeah. You didn't I mean, know from that LinkedIn message if I was going to answer the question or where it was going to head, right? Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people would say, well, why did you take on this in the middle of, of the COVID? The pandemic, right? And, 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 you know, we thought many times that maybe we should punt and maybe we should wait until we get out of the woods in the pandemic. And, and the reality is there's really no perfect time to start this work. And it probably, candidly, is probably a bigger project than I initially had thought as, right. as, as well. Happy that, you know, it, it led to this. But you can always wait till the, and there's no perfect time. So we, we decided, hey, let's go with it because... Candidly, some of the pandemic, well, well, it was challenging. It probably provided a little bit of air cover for us as well in terms of some of the internal things that we had challenges with even before the pandemic. So there's, there's no time like the present to really start planning for the future. And I would agree, all the conversations we've had today that very difficult to get airtime and stakeholder availability to talk about the future when most people are kind of dealing with what's in front of them today. Right. The reality is you can't afford not to. Right? Exactly. Which was one of the takeaways from one of the supply chains to admire 
award winners as you can't afford not to. He yeah. was like, I think we've been too inward looking, right? We've been too busy to really put our head up. And it's my hope that this conference is all about putting your head up and, you know, asking those courageous questions. <laughs>